0: Thomas Frank is the author of What's the Matter with Kansas, The Wrecking Crew, and Pity the Poor Billionaire. His latest column for Salon.com is off with their heads. Thank you for speaking with me, Thomas. Sure thing,
1: Rick. Anytime.
0: Thomas, this is a fascinating look at the endless purge and burn cycles of the right wing of the Republican Party. Talk about how their ideology is at the base of all this endless churn and has been for what?
1: 40 years. Well, forever, yeah. Well, so what you see in the Republican Party for the last least three decades is this sort of, as you put it, this constant churn and burn of their former leaders. Let's say uh, George W. Bush, who, uh, take him, for example, you know, he comes into office in 2000, 2001, and is right away becomes this kind of uh, you know, conservative hero, uh, you know, where they love him, and he can do no wrong, and you know all this sort of thing. And then by the end of his time in office, they're calling him an impostor. you know he was really a closet liberal all, all along, and they're distancing themselves from him. and this is something I've written about before. It's kind of an evergreen subject because it keeps happening. The conservative movement keeps excommunicating their former leaders. Uh, another example would be Tom DeLay. Uh, another would be Richard, Richard Nixon, uh, George Bush's dad, Newt Gingrich. All of these guys have been sort of cast aside as being ideologically deficient in some way after they've been in office for a while. Now it happens to Eric Cantor. And- What's amusing about this? The reason this is even worth, you know, mentioning is because Eric Cantor wrote a book where he used this very logic to talk about why the people before him should all be thrown out because they're like not real conservatives and that sort of thing. You know, this is his book, Young Guns. I don't know if you're familiar with this. In in my job, we have to read some very peculiar things. <laughs>
0: Uh, I can imagine, you know, they sent me one conservative book about, it was something about life under the socialist republic that Obama was creating. And I have to admit, yeah. I mean, I wanted to try to have an open mind. I couldn't even, could not read it.
1: Yeah. Well, what ruins it often is that there are ways to criticize Obama, and he, like any president, he should be criticized, of course. But when you're criticizing him for things that he hasn't done and hasn't said, and everything is taken out of context, it's just not very convincing. Now, Young Guns is not it doesn't do things. I mean, he does do something. It does do some things like that. Eric Cantor imagines that Obama is this kind of crazed socialist dictator but by and large it's pretty mild you know it's a it's a very forgettable book but when he lost this primary election in this big surprise last week i got the book out and read it again and i had forgotten that he spends so much time in the book uh, talking about how the previous generation of conservatives were all sellouts and backsliders and they had to go and he and his fellow young guns were the new generation that was rising up to take their place and give us the true conservatism. And that was, Rick, that was four years ago. (laughs) And now now the sellout and the backslider, it has to go, has to be replaced. Four years.
0: Well, as you say, and you've used this uh, analogy before, and it always seemed apt the French Revolution. Those guillotines, they got to come one there's, it's like the the triple blade that you now have to buy becomes a quadruple blade.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You got to keep those guillotines busy. As I was writing, as I kept thinking of how of all the fun I could have with the French Revolution symbolism, you know, I was thinking of the tale of two cities, Madame Defarge, you know, all the stuff that I could do, but you know, I let it go. But the idea of Eric Cantor in the role of Danton, I like that. But you know, you start extending it. Who's Robespierre? You know, and when is the Thermidor, when is the Thermidorian reaction finally going to happen? You know, when are, uh, when are the moderate Republicans going to uh, get tough with these guys and say, you know, no further? Well, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's ever going to happen because the logic of their movement always presses to the right and to the right and further to the right.
0: And, and as you say, it's really uh, a bankruptcy is at the core of this, is the values that they uh, espouse, it simply doesn't work. And every time I try yeah. it again, they try it harder, it doesn't work more. And then <laughs> that's
1: right. Well, that's the mystery, okay? So there's got to be some reason for this. I mean, we all think that politicians sell out and the, po- and the politicians disappoint us in some way. I mean, we mentioned Obama earlier. Obama has disappointed me in some way. But why is this particular movement so consistently given to this language of idealism and sellout, uh, imposture, turncoats, fakers, betrayers? Why is this movement, why do they love this language so much? There's two reasons for it. One is the really convenient reason, where George Bush was just a bad president, and so they had to get, you know, they want to distance themselves from him somehow, so, uh, you know, of, of course they're all just going to say, you know, he wasn't a real conservative, because he was just, he was terrible. Ditto for Richard Nixon. And they were even saying that about Ronald Reagan. When Iran-Contra was happening and he was looking bad in the polls, uh, the conservative movement was saying, you know, he was a faker all along, he wasn't really one of us, but that now that he is regarded as a kind of saintly grandfather figure they love him again. And the, the same will happen with George Bush. You know, He'll be rehabilitated at some point, and they'll all decide that he, yes, indeed, was a real conservative. But that's not what's going on with Eric Cantor, I think. I think it's something else. And I think what it is, I mean, there's got to be a reason why this, mo- this particular movement is so given to this particular explanation. And I think the answer is because their heroes do sell out. And the question then is why are they so prone to selling out? And you think about it, this is a movement where market principles are the highest form of morality, you know, in the sort of Ayn Rand formulation. And Eric Cantor's opponent, Dave Bratt, is in fact an economics professor. Basically he's on a his his followers are on this sort of market populist crusade. They love the principles of the market. And what is the basic principle of the market? Well it's selling.
0: It's ultimately selling out. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I mean, there was a reason that this movement, you look back at the Tom DeLay days where these guys were all selling themselves. I mean, Duke Cunningham, you know, do you remember this guy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't he like your congressman or something? Yeah, yeah, he was
0: a California congressman. and he was Yeah, and he was basically selling
1: earmarks. I mean, that's what these guys were doing. I mean that was just sort of typical of what that everybody in that Congress was doing. And why do they do this? Because it's essential to their doctrine, this notion of the market being the the most virtuous sort of reality, you know, much more virtuous and much more meaningful and even much more democratic than government. I think that's why this happens again and again and again, you know. And if you go to Washington, if you're like an Eric Cantor type, you know, and you go to Washington and you go back and read what Eric Cantor was saying when he, you know, when he wrote Young Guns, who are his imagined constituents? Who is he going to fight for? And it's always small business, right? They all say this in the Tea Party era. They all, they're all going to fight for small business, but they get to Washington, and of course they don't. And why don't they? Because that's not who has the money, <laughs> you know. If you're going to put government on a market market basis, you know, a market footing, which is what they all say they want to do then you're going to answer to who can offer the biggest incentives. That is what the market forces mean. That's what market forces demand.
0: You summed it up, up aptly in the uh, title of one of your earlier books, One Market Under God.
1: That's right. Invisible. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, that's what all these reforms that these guys want to do is it's always to apply the logic of markets to the state. And if you really believe that that's the right way to do things – then of course you're going to be you're going to answer to Wall Street because uh, that's who that's where the money is.
0: Government is not a business and should need <laughs> not necessarily be run like one. In that's a- right.
1: <laughs> of course, that's the. I mean, that's always the. That's always that's always the great problem. You know, once you start doing this, you realize, oh, wait a second. You know, but it, it's it's a fundamental contradiction for these guys, and they run into it time and again. It's, it's always a problem for them.
0: I've been speaking with Thomas Frank. His newest work for Salon is off with their heads. Thank you for joining me, Thomas.
1: Anytime, Richard.